There are SaaS markets out there that have growth rates up to 30% more than the one that you're in right now. Now, you clicked on this link. You, of course, know that I'm speaking of internationalization. Most of you aren't even doing the bare minimum. In a survey of over 700 SaaS operators, we found that half don't even localize their prices, which is absurd because customers in different regions will pay you more for the exact same product. But honestly, I'm not qualified to tell you what to do. I mean, as you can tell, I'm reading off of a teleprompter right now. You need someone who's actually been there before, someone who has sold on multiple continents. You need someone like Lucas Lovell. My name is Lucas, and I am director of product here at Paddle. Lucas has operated a SaaS business in two different hemispheres, first in his native Australia and then in France. Now he's the director of product at Paddle, where he's located in the UK and takes care of customers all around the globe. As you'll hear in the interview, Lucas's authority isn't defined by racking up successes in a new market. Rather, it's proven through the stumbles he experienced along the way. We got dealt a pretty brutal reality. We hadn't localized all of our contracts and our content. There were a lot of things on the acquisition front that we needed to change. Skip the learning curve of internationalization as we learn about the personalization that will take you to the next level. Localization is sending a really powerful message to your customers that you care about them. My name is Ben Hillman, and let's protect the hustle. Welcome, folks, back to Protect the Hustle. I have got with me here Lucas Lovell. Why don't you give us a bit of your background? Our our topic today is around internationalization, and you're a man of, of many countries yourself. Is that correct? Indeed. I think you probably could say that. As you can probably tell by the accent, I'm originally from Australia, lived in Australia for 24, 25 years, went to school and university in Australia, studied law in Australia, of all things, law and international relations, which is not a path I ended up going down, I guess, which is why we're here talking today about software and technology. I went into tech by founding, starting my own company. Um, So I started my own company straight out of law school back in Australia. That was the 2016 time, uh, 2015, 2016. And I ran that company in Australia for a couple of years and then relocated that business over to France. And we ran the business in Paris for a period of four years, which was a ton of fun, had a great time. We were part of a bunch of acceleration and incubation programs for early stage startups. We grew the business uh, in France over a number of years. And then more recently, I've joined Paddle in the product team. The business that I did run, we ran into some pretty fierce difficulties during COVID. We were a SaaS platform, a software product that we sold to tourism companies. We sold to lots of tourism companies across most of Europe, in Australia, in the US and Canada. And we hit some roadblocks, (laughs) to say the least, throughout the course of COVID when people stopped traveling. We attempted to pivot the business a couple of times. Um, and ended up realizing that the opportunity was probably running dry for us, at which point I moved over from Paris to London to join Paddle, where I'm very happy uh, to work at right now. Australia, France, London now, there's maybe some assumptions that folks make about the differences between each of those regions. What do you think was the most surprising thing when you arrived in France that you didn't expect about doing business there versus your home in Australia? I think the first thing I would say is that we were very new to business at the time and we were quite naive in our expectations. We sort of thought that we'd been given this wonderful opportunity and that would just mean world domination. And the fact that we were taking a company from Australia where we had customers in Australia to France was was sort of like a big opportunity that would work itself out for us. And I think the first 
definitely the first one or two years in France, we we got dealt a pretty brutal reality, right? And that was that doing business in France is very different to doing business in Australia. The fundamentals of business are the same, right? You make an amazing product and you sell it to a market that has a deep need for that product. But the way in which you do that and how you operate as a business needs to change quite substantially um, in order to succeed in a foreign market. Now, to what extent it has to differ definitely varies, yeah? So I think for an Australian company, most will, lots of Australian companies will use the UK as their entry into the European market because it's typically an easier place to land. Culturally, operationally, a lot of things about doing business in the UK and Australia are quite similar. We didn't go to the UK, we went to France. <laughs> um, and France is a lot more challenging and a lot more different. So I think we see those sort of trends everywhere, right? Where where companies will try and internationalize or move across the world um, and, and, and go about that in different ways. Was there anything when you showed up in France that you were like, oh, we're going to do great in this specific area, whether it's acquisition is going to be easier or maybe advertising is going to be better. Or something Was there something that uh, you thought was going to be gang- like gangbusters and then it turned out to be you were completely wrong? I don't think we expected anything to be gangbusters, to be honest. I think we did realize that there were a lot of things on the acquisition front that we needed to change in order to be successful in France. I think coming from an English-speaking country, there's there's a bit of an assumption that the world just plays by your rules, to be honest with you. And and so we hadn't localized all of our contracts and our content into French. And that, you know, it created a few difficulties in terms of trying to acquire those 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 few customers. So that was definitely a learning experience. But I don't think there was anything that we thought was going to be a unique opportunity because we were foreign. Apart from the fact that maybe we thought it was a bit cool and sexy to not be French <laughs> and not being operate like operating in that like startup ecosystem, especially at a time when the French startup ecosystem was really trying to internationalize and become more global. And we know that one of the exciting prospects of internationalization and is it, it really is this opportunity to scale and it gives you there's, I mean, if you think about it too, if there's a recession in Australia, for example, that maybe isn't affecting Europe, there's a massive opportunity there to have a little bit of armor and, and, and durability in your business because you're able to expand to a place where they are still growing at a, at a good rate. I mean, we know from our, yep. we have some data from last year that we'll of course link in the description and maybe even show on the screen. There's different regions have different willingness to pay. I mean, compared to the US, the, the Nordics, for example, are willing to pay nearly 30% more than folks in the United States. And yes, the, the Nordics is a smaller region than all of Europe versus all the rest of the world and everything like that. But I see why there is this great opportunity to expand elsewhere, where it's like you're basically selling the same product, but people are going to pay you more for that. Yeah. What makes that so... That, that's an alarming stat, no? It is. W- willingness to pay is one thing. The The other thing that makes it a really exciting business opportunity is market size, right? And that was the thing that initially drew us to France, just to sort of relate that back to the experience, was like, we're in Australia, which is a country of 22, 23 million people with a medium-sized tourism industry going to a juggernaut of the tourism industry, one of the most visited countries in the world, right? Where the market size was, we estimated at 10x what it was in Australia, right? So so I think the lure for us was was not so much around like, okay, we think our business, like we think we can monetize 
our customers better in France, like i.e. they'll pay more, but rather there were probably just more customers for us to acquire. And so our opportunity to grow as a business is bigger by expanding internationally. I think for most companies, that's probably the impetus for, for, for expanding internationally. But to your point, right, there, it does create other opportunities as well, right? In terms of being able to leverage a higher willingness to pay in different countries, right. um, being able to sell the same product at a higher price point, but at the same cost to you as a business. So that's definitely a thing. Um, and I think the latter, the concept of adjusting pricing and adapting your business based on willingness to pay is something that is typically overlooked by a lot of software companies, especially. The last thing I want to I want to harp on um, from the opportunity perspective as well is that I know from the U.S. perspective that we're we're pretty selfish. We we kind of only think of as the U.S. economy is the important economy, and and expand and scaling and growing in the U.S. is important. And so maybe not thinking about the opportunity that is in are in other regions. Which when you look at again referencing the data that we gathered uh, at some point last year, that SaaS revenue growth by region is also loads bigger in different regions. When you look at something like compound annual growth rate, it's 30 points higher in Europe than in the United States. Australia and New Zealand, for example, are also 20 points higher. And I know you, you touched on this yourself, but just kind of driving that point home of speaking the same language here for the most part, especially in Australia and New Zealand, it, it's there's a tantalizing, oh, that's a great opportunity. And, and it sounds like where a lot of people get wrong is it's not just about changing your prices to to be the same thing as they are in those regions or the same currency, if you will. It's a fundamental strategy that you kind of need to adopt. I think you're coming around like it's a tantalizing thing for a business, especially like a business that is perhaps a bit younger is a really good way to put it. And it's funny, actually, because instinctively people in the US don't go, I need a bigger market, right? The US market is substantial. People in Australia who are very ambitious, instinctively, they go, I need a bigger market, right? Because Australia isn't a very big market. It's a great market, but it's not a big market. I think some of those cultural differences, uh, I mean, you can see those cultural, I mean, they're sort of cultural, but it's, you know what I'm saying, right? Like someone in the US instinctively goes, I don't need that. But someone in Australia goes, oh, in order to scale to X size, I need to be able to access other markets. So there's probably, I, I think it, that that sort of tantalizing lure catches companies perhaps outside of the US more than it does those in the US. But to your point, that lure to expand also often comes with a naivety around what is actually required to execute on that opportunity, right? It's one thing to say, oh, we're going to go and sell to companies in the UK or we're going to go and sell to companies in France to actually do that in a way that is meaningful to the business requires a lot of effort and a lot of thinking. The internet, SaaS is everywhere. SaaS is, is global. It's The internet is not you know, localized to one specific place. It's, it's something that everyone can access. And so the, there's, there's sort of this assumption of, well, why isn't selling everywhere? I mean, maybe it's a silly question, but if I can just ask you that, why isn't selling everywhere, selling online, just the ticket to selling everywhere? What, what are the complexities that kind of come with that. I should I should be able to just sell my software to anyone, right? And theoretically you can, right? And software has has enabled companies to grow and go global much more like much more quickly than perhaps they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, right? But it's one thing to say that that your product is able to be bought from a global buyer base. 
it's another thing to actually build a function and build like a system that enables those those buyers to purchase whatever the product is, right? So I think there's a lot that 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 goes into that, and we can talk about that if you want. Please, all the sort yeah. of things that are really that are really important. A lot of companies, there's a few things here, right? So I think currency is an is an obvious one, right? If you're expanding internationally, the right thing to do is to localize your currencies to reflect the local market, right? So if I'm selling into France, I should be charging for my product in euros. Yeah. If I'm selling to the UK, I should be charging for my product in British pounds, same as US, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's also language localization, being able to convert the buying experience into a native language. So having your website in French, having your checkout experience in French, that's another component of it. Um, the interesting thing about languages, languages though, is that people forget about a lot of things. Like once you once you start localizing on language, there's a lot to localize, right? It's not just about throwing your pricing page through a translator, but there's a lot to localize around your marketing collateral, around your contracts, around your terms and conditions, all of this sort of stuff, right? There's a stat that I've I've prepared beforehand, obviously, but 70, 72.4% of consumers are actually more likely to make a purchase from a website if the information on that website is in their native language, I think, which is which is super interesting and a really good learning for everyone who's thinking about expanding internationally. You then have things like payment method localization, which is one that people don't often think about, which is like, am I providing the buying options that reflect the local market? It's easy to think that everyone buys everything with cards powered by Visa and MasterCard. It's not true. There are lots of markets out there which have local payment methods of which the adoption of those payment methods is higher than cards. So payment method localization is another component. We also have things like pricing localization, which we which we spoke about, where you can actually change the price of your product based on willingness to pay in different regions. And lots of these things companies tend to do to some extent. Some don't do it at all. Like there are lots of companies which just think, I'm just going to charge the same flat US dollar price all over the world and they don't even bother and they get and, and they keep their pricing page in English and everything stays the same. You have a bunch of levers that you can pull, things that you can change, things that you can tweak that enable you to improve your buyer conversion, make sure your product and your offering resonates more with the local audience. They're just some of the way, some of the things that you should be thinking about when you're when you're trying to sell internationally, all sort of under the envelope of a of of a pretty robust strategy, right? Which includes are you operationally set up? to sell in that country? Do you have a go-to-market motion that resonates in that country, that works in that country? One thing I, I, I experienced a lot in France is like the people buying your thing are different, right? And that's great. That's one of the wonderful things about doing global business is that you get to meet so many amazing people and learn about lots of different cultures, but their characteristics and their trends and their, sorry, not trends, their traits are fundamentally different, yeah? I'll give you a good example. We realized very early on when we were trying to buy, sell into Europe that Germans are very data conscious. They're super data conscious, much more data conscious than Australians are, yeah? And we were selling a, a product that interacted with a lot of personal data, had a lot of personal data incorporated into it. And the sensitivity around that data was far, far stronger in Germany. It wasn't a problem. It just meant we had to address that early on in the buying cycle earlier on in the buying cycle, more early than we did in other countries. So that's an example of a tweak we made in how we went to market and the actual buying and in, in, in the actual selling process based on a characteristic of individuals in a certain country that we were trying to sell into. 
that's just an example of the many, many different things that 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 you can come up against when you're trying to sell internationally and all the things that you have to address in order to become successful. Does that make sense? If we make that like as tactical as we can here. So I'm I'm a listener to this podcast. I'm hearing you say that. And okay, great. I have a, a SaaS product. I know the easy example is always a CRM or something like that. And I want to I, I'm hearing that thing about, okay, when you're selling in the German market, it they're much more data conscious. What tactically am I specifically going to do to ensure that I, I, I take that into consideration? Is it just a matter of making that landing page specific, like in, incorporating that data component? Like what? How, how specific can we get here? I think it could be a number of things. It could be surfacing it on your website in a clearer manner, right? It could be bringing it to the front of your contracts, your terms and conditions, your privacy policies, right? Making it being louder and clearer about your data policy and how you manage and store data. This is an example. For us, we were selling sales led a lot. So we were actually interacting with people who were buying our software. And so we would always address our data policy, not in a deep detailed manner, but we would address that we had a data policy quite early on in the sales process, just because we knew that there was a sensitivity there as a way of reassuring the customer that we're on top of it, basically. So there are a number of things tactically that you can do around how you surface information, where information lives, and how you talk to your customer. There's so much more that we could dive into here. I'm A lot of the data that we're pulling right now is from a collaboration that we did with Elena Verna on internationalization that she posted to uh, her newsletter. We have an internationalization resource that we're working on right now that should be available in the next um, couple weeks as of listening to this. If there is some sort of early access for folks, they can. We'll, we'll make sure to link it below. We'll talk more about this, but I just wanted to pause and, and kind of announce that to folks that there's there's a lot more that we can be specific about and and, and give folks advice on that we're gonna make sure that we include in here. But specifically where. If this isn't a good transition, I don't know what is. Coffee. I'm. It's morning for me right now. I'm buzzing. I, I've got the coffee flowing through me. But how does that related to internationalization? You might be wondering, Lucas. Well, as you're familiar with, but maybe our folks listening aren't familiar with, is that the famous coffee company Starbucks maybe could have used a little bit of the advice that we're talking about today when they first uh, expanded into Australia. And I want to I want to hear your you know recap of that personally. But I uh, just as a, a short description for the folks listening, uh, Starbucks opened a bunch of stores in Australia in the two thousands, and they quickly found that launching there uh, was not as easy as they thought, and they lost north of a hundred million U.S. dollars. And I think they've since sort of correct course corrected a little bit and maybe learned from lessons there when expanding into. Uh, China and and Italy, but Lucas, you're Australian. What 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 happened here? What what's what? How did how did they mess up so bad? I am indeed Australian, and I also love my coffee, and so I can definitely understand uh, why Starbucks why it didn't quite work out for Starbucks in Australia. I'm actually sort of proud of it. Is that weird? No, that's great. <laughs> I think there are two things. I mean, I think primarily it's about misreading the market. And not understanding that in a different market, you're selling to a different buyer who has very different characteristics and traits in a very different environment, right? That also has very different characteristics and traits. And there are a couple of things about coffee in Australia that are quite unique to Australia, 
right? I think the first one is that coffee is a bit like wine in Australia. People drink it to really enjoy it. You have a coffee palette. And I think like coffee in Australia is like that cafe does great coffee. This cafe does good coffee. That cafe does okay coffee. And this cafe does bad coffee. And I think people very much think about coffee as something that they should enjoy as opposed to something that they just grab in the morning for a caffeine caffeine boost. I think in the US, it's it's much more the latter than it is the former, at least in big Again, cities. Again, my 30-ounce carafe right exactly. here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're a bit more artistic about our coffee. It's a bit more of a, 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 bit more of a, a, a delicacy, I guess. I think that's one part of it. But I think the bigger part of it is that in Australia, and I think this is quite unique to Australia, coffee underpins like social interactions between people right? Coffee is something you meet up for. Yeah. There is absolutely a thriving takeaway coffee scene as well, but it's as much about like the experience of drinking coffee and the companionship around drinking coffee than it is anything else. Right. So if I think about the UK, the UK does this with drinking. <laughs> like in the UK, you say to your mates, like, can we meet up for a pint? Yeah. Right. In Australia, you say, want to meet up for a coffee. Australians also drink a lot too. But we'll, <laughs> we'll park that for now. Sure. So I think like the thing about coffee is that coffee, coffee, well, cafes that work, right? Like the coffee comes packaged with a really nice environment to enjoy it in. Yeah. And that's how coffee became really trendy in Australia. And that's also how the coffee culture in Australia grew into like the brunch culture that Australia is known for. And now lots of countries around the world, like cafes that do really good coffee and brunch will outwardly market themselves as being Australian owned because Australia has that perception of being really good at that stuff. So I think Starbucks sort of took that American grab-and-go concept of coffee and they tried to make that fly in Australia. But Australians are much more interested in like funky interiors, nice background music, the more artistic side of coffee and the culture around coffee. And Starbucks didn't adapt their offering and their positioning based on that buyer expectation, based on that characteristic of the buyer in Australia, which is quite different to what it is in many other countries around the world. So I think that's that for me at least is why it didn't work out for Starbucks and no doubt Starbucks have learned from that and they probably create lovely environments for people <laughs> to enjoy their coffee in, in 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 other countries now. Funny enough it's also adapted in the states as well where there's there's this Starbucks Reserve is this like branch off it's almost this higher tier if you will where they they serve like affogados and and all that sort of complex drinks that maybe a, a regular drive through Starbucks wouldn't have. But I am curious what this is my job, but you're going to you're going to make me sound super <laughs> smart when I ask this. What does all this have to do with software? Why is this why is this even relevant to the conversation that we're having right now? I think it's fundamentally the same thing in many ways, right? For Starbucks, they failed to read and look into the characteristics and traits of the buyer. And they failed to look into the characteristics and traits of the environment, right? And software is no different, right? Your buyers are different fundamentally. How they respond to your messaging is different. The example about Germans being really data conscious, that is a characteristic of that buyer that is different, right? And you have to, in, in the same way that Australians see coffee differently, right? The characteristic and trait of the particular buyer is different. And then secondly, I think the environment's different, right? So the currency is different. The language is different, the laws are different, the regulations are different, all these things are different. So this assumption that you can just go into another market with the exact same operating and go-to-market model as you previously had in another country 
just doesn't fly, right? It's not setting yourself up for success. And so I think irrespective of the thing that you're selling, the, all of that is true, right? The buyer and the environment are different. And that is true irrespective of whether it's a cup of coffee, whether it's whether it's a burger at McDonald's, or whether it's a CRM SaaS product, right? Does that make sense? I'm thinking... My mind is buzzing right now, thinking through all those, all the sort of marketing stuff that we've been guilty of. You know, I've been, I've been guilty of my career of, oh, we make the complex simple. Mm. And that's the goal of what most software companies are trying to do. And it's a sim, it's a similar thing here where, yes, there is this tantalizing opportunity for scale by expanding internationally, but it really isn't as simple as just flipping a switch. There's there's so much like, I mean, when we compare Starbucks to software, a lot of what we've been talking about on the content team has been personalizing that buyer experience. And, and that's what you have to do whenever you're expanding into these markets. And it's fascinating that it is so, like it's a great thing to do because it gives you that sort of fortitude and that durability, but it's complex. And and people, I think buyers, from what we can gather, buyers can kind of see through the BS as Australia certainly did with Starbucks. It was, I think the the quotes that I saw out there was, it was just so available. And and it's like, well, wait a second, we don't necessarily want this. It's fascinating to me. I don't know mm-hmm. if you had any, I didn't really have a point that I was arriving to or a question, <laughs> a question I should say I was arriving to here. But if you yeah. wanted to chime in there, that's by all means. I mean, the thing in my mind is that there are things that Starbucks did that a lot of software companies don't do, right? Like the idea of an American company going to Australia and selling coffee in US dollars is utterly ridiculous. Right. Like that makes no sense at all, right? Mm-hmm. You would never go to Australia and sell coffee in US dollars. That never happens, right? But in software, tons of companies do that. There are tons of companies out there who will happily sell to a global buyer base in their native country, in their local, in sorry, in their local currency, and not make any effort to localize, right? So, all you're doing is restricting yourself, right? All you're doing is 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 restricting your capacity to win to win customers and take your product to market successfully in those markets. That what what you said right there was is absolutely gold. Where it's Again, coming back to that assumption of, oh, well, if I sell online, it means it's it's available everywhere. But it's like, you're right. You wouldn't go into Australia and just sell a cup of venti cold brew, which is my order from Starbucks. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I I just got back from Europe and the we have filter coffee in the States. I'm, I'm drinking a, a French press right now. But obviously, everywhere you go, it's an Americano is the closest thing that you can get to that. I know one thing that Australia did do or uh, Starbucks did do when they were in Australia is they realized that maybe we don't cater to Australians themselves, but instead cater to tourists who are here. So for example, this I know this is France, this is not Australia. When I was in Europe last week, the 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 sorry human inside me was like, well, I, I haven't had a you know a good cup of coffee. In, re- in reality, it was just what I was used to. And while my girlfriend and I were at the Louvre, there was a Starbucks there. And they had cold brew, which is not something <laughs> that they have. And 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 it was this nor it was like, yeah. oh my goodness, like hallelujah, I finally have this thing that I've been certain it had only been what a week since I had had something like that. But it's it's adjusting too to realizing, well, wait a second, maybe our our market isn't the people that are that are here. It's there's as you've said. There's this massive tourism industry that's in somewhere like France. 
we can cater to those people specifically instead of the folks that actually live here. So we've harped on Starbucks. We've given a couple anecdotes on how that relates to software. Lucas, what should folks be focusing on when they're trying to internationalize? Like if I, if I want to start my strategy right now, mm-hmm. where do I even start? What are, the, what are the things that I need to make sure that I focus on? I think it's really important to deeply think about your internationalization strategy, just to say that up front. And I think there's that there are three sort of ways in which a business grows. And fundamentally, for most of us, the purpose of going international is to grow our business. So you should think about your internationalization strategy along the the, the lines of acquisition, monetization, and retention, right? So what am I going to do in that country that will enable me to acquire customers? How am I going to monetize those customers? And then how am I going to retain those customers? And all of those three things, right, may and are likely to look different in every market you go into. So I think there's this there's this perception that if I just like charge in euro and convert my pricing page to French, I'm done. Like you're not done at all, right? The way you acquire your customers, the way you go to market, the messaging, the positioning, the channels you use to acquire customers, you need to think about that deeply. How you monetize your customers, the payment methods you offer, the pricing points you set, is that the right pricing point? How does that stack up against local competitors? Are you localizing currency? Are you localizing language? All of that stuff is going to help you monetize those customers more effectively. And then retention... Are you set up to operationally support those customers? So if they have a problem, can they go to a support channel where they can talk to someone in their native language? Are they able to do that? Are they able to access collateral to help them along the way of using your product? So all of these things matter. And within each of these things like acquisition, monetization, and retention, there are a number of like more tactical things that you can do and levers you can pull to improve your chances of success. So I would say the first step is to build a really good team around internationalization, right? And make sure that team is representative of acquisition, monetization, and retention, and make sure that team understands the product, the product being right and ready for that market, i.e. is the product localized, the go-to-market motion, right? And the operational setup. So are you legally set up to operate? Are there different laws and regulations that you need to comply with um, so that you can effectively do business? So I think, I think like to summarize it, I'd think about acquisition, monetization, and retention more strategically about how that country or that market is going to help you grow and become more successful. And then how can that sort of cross-functional team um, really work on product, go-to-market, and operations to make sure that you're set up for success? That's probably where I'd start. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I'd dive a level and, and, and then I'd sort of go a level deeper, mm-hmm. right? And look at all the individual things that you can do within that sort of scope to improve your chances of succeeding when selling internationally, to reduce friction in the process of going international so that you're going to be successful. And when we talk about that, right, if we start with acquisition, you have to think about messaging and positioning, right? You have to think about are the go-to-market channels that I previously used in country X going to work in country Y. If I'm selling uh, a product to well, a, a product at a high price point to like, like, like in a sales led fashion, do I need people selling in that language? Do I need them locally set up there? Right. So all of that stuff around acquisition, which sort of touches the operational side as well, but 
am I set up to, to, to acquire customers really well? And then monetization, you're thinking about things like pricing localization, payment method localization, language localization, currency localization to improve the chances of those buyers getting through the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the obvious two that people tend to go for are currency and language. First, they say, oh, I'll localize my currency. I'll charge my French customers in euros and language. A couple of things to point out here. When you think about language localization, don't stop at your website. A lot of people do. <laughs> we learned that the hard way when we started to acquire customers in France and we started getting requests for contracts in French. And that was a non-starter if we didn't have that. So it's contracts, it's legal documents, it's support documents, it's marketing collateral. It's not just website. And then think about the buying persona and how they pay for things. Yeah. So payment method localization is really important. Look at payment method adoption in different countries. Do they have a high rate of card adoption? Like are they using credit cards in the same way that we typically do in Australia, the UK and the US? Or do they have a high adoption of different payment methods? Certain countries stand out, like China is a great example, where local payment methods dominate. Um, Brazil is another great example where this is changing quite quickly. So PIX is a payment method in Brazil that is now being used more than cards in Brazil, right? So think about localizing your payment methods. And then, of course, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but pricing localization. Are you adapting your prices based on willingness to pay? If you're not, you might be leaving money on the table if you're charging uh, the same price for your Nordic customers as you are your customers in Southern Europe, for example. So making sure that you're pricing not just by currency, but also by region as well is really important. Um, and that's another step, another level of depth that you can go to, to remove friction in the buying process. Because a lot of Eurozone countries, for example, will use the Euro, but might have a different willingness to pay. Yeah. Right. There are lots of little levers. Um, once you dig into things like pricing and payment methods and language and currency um, that you really need to think about. It's a lot, honestly. I, I could see how this could be overwhelming for folks who maybe are a little shocked at how complex it really is. And so if we can talk a little bit, I know one way we, we've tried to simplize, simplify it a little bit is through this tier list that we have. And could you talk to that a little bit about like, I think this is a good way to look at where you can start specifically and how it's not it's not just expanding globally. It's like where where should folks how should folks think about starting with this? The concept of a tier list is basically to group all of your opportunities in terms of market opportunities into three different tiers that are reflective of your chances of success in those particular countries or markets, right? So your tier one markets are probably the but the markets that you're currently in. So your local markets and markets that you might have gone and already successfully expanded into and you're operating really well there. Tier two might be uh, markets and countries that have a similar set of characteristics that present really interesting opportunities for you to expand, but they probably require a little more strategic thinking around the how. And in tier three countries or markets are probably those places that you shouldn't really bother with right now, right? Because there are uh, a set of characteristics or traits, be those legal things or regulatory things or a fundamental di di difference in how business gets done that you should probably just ignore for now and not and not bother. And I think the way that I would approach it is to build a map 
right of 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 all the key markets and then map them based on a number of characteristics and classify them into those tiers and then build out your strategy accordingly because what you see once you sort of go into all the different attributes of a market right is that it's much easier to expand into some markets than it is to others i'll give you some examples i think i alluded to one at the start but for an australian company if you expand into the uk you have no language problem firstly right? If you expand it to the US, you have no language problem. Australia culturally is also very similar to the UK. So the way that business gets done is very similar. So your chances of success are probably quite high. Um, you also have a, like a lot of government programs and support that help Australian companies relocate to the UK because of the, the, the proximity of the two countries politically and culturally. Now, if you're going to, to Europe, it's probably much more challenging. Like as an Australian company who went to France, You've got language, a lot of language, and you have a lot of operational differences. Now, if you're in France right now and you want to expand, then Germany is probably much easier than the UK because you don't have a currency localization problem. And you're all in the Eurozone, you're in the European Union. There's no, there's very little friction to doing business in the EU because of how it's set up. So that's probably a much easier prospect for you. So what you're effectively doing is you're you're building out this 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 map or this in my head it's like a matrix of sorts where you have countries listed and then you have all these attributes across the top and you can sort of tick boxes and do a do a red amber green sort of thing and suddenly you, it becomes very obvious that there are a few markets that probably make a lot more sense for you to go deep in right now than just trying to sort of spray and see what sticks across all of them. It's so to to summarize a bit there's a lot you need to think about, but if you when you break it down to the steps that you've talked about there, especially with this tiers where it's like, okay, yes, we want to do, we want to expand everywhere, we want to be everywhere aspirationally, but that's that's our third tier. The first tier is to first figure out where are we winning right now, and what's a similar market that we can get into. I'm sure it sounds like if you uh, had to do it all over again, maybe you would expand into the UK or the US before France. No, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, even when we were in France, we found ourselves jumping over to the UK quite a bit mm. because we were finding it easier to sell into the UK. Right, that makes sense. And and in a way, it almost because you were physically closer. That also helped. I'm totally. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about the what, the how. I mean, we can get a little bit deeper into the how here. If if I want to form a team, maybe I'm. You know, we can take a a smaller uh, folks who are maybe a little bit more resource strapped to a little bit maybe more liberal with how they can deal with those resources. What does it look like when I'm building this team? It needs to be cross-functional in nature. It needs to be representative of most functions. And I think that often gets lost, that internationalization, expanding internationally, touches all corners of the business. Yeah. So you need a product that works and resonates with that audience. So it needs to be in a certain language. You need support involved, right? Because they're going to be supporting customers in a different market. You need marketing involved because they are going to be like looking for new go-to-market motions and understanding the dynamic of buying in that country. You need sales involved for a, sim for a similar reason. You need legal involved. Like, do we need to set up there locally? What laws and regulations do we need to be aware of? So for me, that team looks like, we call it a bit of a tiger team here. I think that's a term that got that gets thrown around a lot in tech, which is effectively a small group of people representative of a broad set of functions that is able to sort of 
zoom out and look at the entire thing and go that, 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 and that. We need to cover off all of these things and make sure that we're moving forward with all of these things in consideration. So that's the way I'd think about it. So is there anything else that we're missing here that that folks might need to know when they when they go on this internationalization journey? What have we not covered yet? I think the thing to remember is that internationalization is a growth strategy, right? It's an opportunity for you to expand and grow your business. And localization is how you do that. It's the execution of that strategy. Now, I think it it's easy to go, oh, I need to localize my currency because they use a different currency, or I need to localize my language because they speak a different language. The thing that underpins all of this is localization is sending a really powerful message to your customers that you care about them, right? And we really shouldn't underestimate how important that is when you're trying to internationalize and expand. 100%. I think that's a great message to leave off here with is that it's it's about personal it's about personal personalization is what we're really talking exactly, about exactly yeah. exactly exactly i have some really amazing examples of that from in in france by the way as my french got better when i was in france and i started uh speaking french to our customers the dynamic of the relationship that i had with my customers transformed dramatically right and a lot of that was maybe because i was the the australian guy who spoke really awful French. <laughs> but the fact that the fact that i was trying yeah. and able to hold a conversation sent a really powerful message that we care as a business about doing doing business with them in the way that they want to operate too right and that was in a sales-led fashion where it was very much selling larger contracts but i think the message is the same irrespective of whether you're selling a $60,000 contract or whether you're trying or or whether you have a product like growth motion and you're trying to sell a product to 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 a large number of customers at a low price point right localization shows that you really really care about the buyer you care about the experience you obsess over every touch point that they have with your business and that customer centricity and that customer first thinking in the context of internationalization is super important. This has been a really, really helpful conversation uh, for me, Lucas. Hopefully it's been beneficial to the folks that are listening. Next steps, if, if folks want to know more from you, is there is there somewhere we can point them where maybe they could reach out to you and, and get more information? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm also happy to, 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 to chat on email, to speak to anybody. I'm really interested in this topic. I mean, it's been a really important part of my career i think a lot of what we spoke about are the gotchas around internationalization and the things to think about at the same time right i don't want that to come across as like be careful there is a proceed with caution message in there but fundamentally the unlock is amazing and the unlock can be enormously impactful on your business but also on you as people right um the opportunities to learn the opportunities to uh, discover new cultures and new ways of doing business and I guess ship value to, to, to customers all over the world is really powerful. And so I would encourage everybody to really go for it, but think deeply about it before you go for it. And so Twitter, LinkedIn, can we? are you comfortable sharing your email? Uh, you can get me on lucas.lovell at paddle.com. Twitter, just type in Lucas Lovell Paddle and I'll pop up. And Same that's, and that's L-U-C-A-S-L-O-V-E-L-L, right? Correct. I'm Spot crushing on. it, man. Awesome. Well, thanks <laughs> so much. Smashing it, mate. Yeah. Smashing it. Thanks very much. Yeah. I appreciate the chat.